So, the theme today is the Tithe Wars, actually. We're going to look at almost 100 years of history, from 1836 to 1936, and centering in on two periods in particular, that's the 1880s and the 1930s. The 1930s was the culmination of what, at the time, people described as the Tithe War. I mean, this is a front page from the Daily Mirror in 1931, describing an auction of seized produce in Stelling Minis, where um, uh, farmers disrupted the auction, the auction, uh, and there were scuffles and so on. Bullocks stampeded, auctioneer pelted with mud. Throughout the 1930s, um, this Tithe War, which was the most important rural protest movement of the interwar years, this Tithe War involved farmers refusing to pay the Tithe rent charge, as it was called at the time. They faced court proceedings, after which their livestock and also their possessions and even their furniture could be seized for non-payment of the type rent charge. Um, they confronted bailiffs, possession men, as the bailiffs were called, who, who would, after produce had been seized, would be posted on the farms to guard the stock before it was auctioned or removed by people who had bought the stock by tender. They lobbied um, politicians, they waged a media campaign, and they engaged lawyers to challenge the legality of the measures being taken against them by the Tithe collectors. Um, and the protests prompted the government to act. In 1934, a royal commission was established and a report came out at the beginning of 1936, which led to new Tithe legislation and, in effect, the beginning of the end of the Tithe, which was that the history of Tithe goes back to the, uh, the mists of time. It's not the subject for tonight's, um, uh, for, for this afternoon's lecture, um, and it's a controversial topic, of course. But 1936 was a key moment in this history because, not because of the wisdom of politicians, but because of the campaign which was waged by farming communities with the support of many, many others. Um, so Tithe has its origins in the midst of time. I mean, the legacy we, we, we see today, you know, Maidstone, the, the museum is a former Tithe barn um, owned by the Archbishop. Um, a lot of the wedding venues are Tithe, former Tithe barns. Uh, tithe means 10%, 10% of produce which was handed over to the church in medieval times. But in this country, for centuries, Tithe became the thread binding the church with the state and with the landed aristocracy as well. Because by the Reformation, or just after the Reformation, one third of tithe was in private hands. Rich landowners, 
but also the leading educational institutions in this country, Oxford University, Cambridge University, all the public, major public schools collected tithe. Uh, charities, you know, the, what became hospitals, Guy's Hospital, St Bart's Hospital, all collected tithe. Two thirds though was collected by the church. Now most European countries abolished tithe in the decades or so following the French Revolution. And in this country, in the early decades of the 19th century, there were demands to abolish tithe. Uh, tithe featured prominently in the rural revolt of 1830, for example, the, the revolt known as Captain Swing, which again began in Kent, uh, at Rotten, for example, in 1830. Between 400 and 500 labouring people gathered at the rector's mansion and to cries of bread or blood demanded that he cut his tithes in order to allow the farmers to increase labourers' wages. In 1834, there was a meeting of the farming community organised by the major agricultural association in Kent, in East Kent, on Barren Downs. And 3,000 people turned up and the meeting was hijacked by radicals who proposed a resolution to the meeting and the resolution denounced, this is from the Kentish Gazette, denounced the evils inflicted by the tithe system and called for the abolition of the present system of tithes. And the Kentish Gazette, and I know this because I found it over here somewhere in this, uh, in this building, denounced this, this work of revolutionaries and levellers seeking to subvert the government. So in 1836, we had the Tithe Commutation Act. Now, in most countries in Europe, Tithe was abolished. This act didn't abolish Tithe, it commuted it into a cash payment, the Tithe rent charge. Tithe becomes a cash payment to be paid by the occupier of the land to the tithe owner, either the church or one of the, the, the private tithe owners. And it was calculated on a complicated uh, formula linked to the price of wheat, oat and barley. Um, this meant there would be big variations in the amount of tithe paid in different parts of the country. The, the main wheat growing, corn producing regions tended to have higher tithe now than the um, pastoral farming areas. So the tithe wars, when they break out, are mainly concentrated in the sort of southern part of England and also of Wales. And there are additional charges as well. There's the extraordinary tithe, which is an extra tithe for, for um, hops and fruit growing, which were considered to be particularly they were, you know, profitable, profitable crops and so people who had land which was growing these crops uh, of hops and, 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 and uh, producing fruit had to pay extra tithe. And in the event of non-payment, the tithe owners had the right to go into a farmer's property, to go onto their land and to distrain, was the word they used, to distrain the produce 
to make up for the tithe that they weren't receiving. So that was the 1836 Tithe Act. This wasn't the abolition of tithe, this was a compromise. It was, in fact, part of the liberal reform programme of the 1830s, you know, the Great Reform Act and other reforms around that time. But the point is that tithe remained controversial and deeply resented in farming communities. And the result of that were, was you know, the tithe war. And there were two waves of this tithe war, the 1880s and the 1930s. Now that brings us to our Kentish tithe warriors. So, as Mark said, I'm going to mainly talk about two, but there's a few others who are going to crop up in this, in this narrative. Uh, and this is one who does crop up in this narrative, although he's not the direct subject of, the, of today's talk. Because the protests in the, in the 1930s were coordinated by the National Tithe Payers Association. By 1934, this association had, had uh, organisations in 22 counties. But the cradle and the major hotspot of this tithe war and the cradle of this association was Kent. Uh, the National Tithe Association's president was um, Reverend Roderick Kedwood, a Methodist minister who, between 1929 and 1931, was the MP for Ashford, the Liberal MP for Ashford, uh, and he farmed at Westwell, close to Ashford, which today is, well, I think it's part of the M20, or has completely destroyed that area. But it was a, uh, there was a big estate there, owned by a, um, a, a member of the aristocracy, and after the First World War, the estate was sold off to all the tenant farmers. Kedwood's father bought, um, well, Kedwood himself actually bought his, his plot and he farmed in Westwell. And there's a monument to him today at Ashford Market. Um, and at, at the top of it, it says Tithe. It's not a monument to, just to him, but it's to his role in leading the campaign against the Tithe. Um, now, this talk is going to feature two other type warriors. Firstly, this man, Frank Richard Allen, who was the secretary of the National Type Payers Association. Um, I found a lot of stuff about Frank Allen in the Canterbury, Canterbury Cathedral archives. Because between 1902 and 1924, he worked in the cathedral and he was actually the tithe collector. But he ended up as an example of a gamekeeper turning poacher, because he ended up leading the struggle against the tithe. Uh, from 1924, when he becomes the National Secretary of the National Tithe Payers Association. And the National Tithe, Association, National tithe Payers Association office was, was either that one or it was that one. It was one of the buildings, one of the offices upstairs in 19 St. Margaret's Street, Canterbury, which is just a stone's throw from the, from the, um, the, the cathedral's gates. The second one, unfortunately I haven't got a photograph of this man. I'm still waiting, possibly a genealogist who has studied the Peterson family, perhaps will come up with a photograph of Edward Whitrick. Hilltide Peterson, 1858 to 1934, the son of William Peterson, the rector of Biddenden, who 
it's quite famous for all sorts of reasons actually. If you Google him, you'll find out his daughter was uh, um, uh, prosecuted, uh, I think he made some, on the charge of murder. And I think she was sectioned. Um, uh, it was all over there. It was a big scandal in the, in the press, I think in 1890 or so. But his, one of his sons, Edward Peterson, was um, a solicitor. But if you look at his obituary in the Times, an authority on tithe. He was, they called it at the Times. He was one of the greatest authorities on tithes. And he was known as the Parsons' friend. And basically, between 1880, uh, the 1880s, the late 1880s, and 1937, he campaigned to defend the tithe, to defend the rights of tithe owners, and particularly to defend the rights of the, of the, of, of the clergy in collecting tithe, and also to resist the tithe payers' movement. So we have a, a character on both sides of the conflict. So, um, the agitation against the tithe, against the 1836 Act and its repercussions, begins in the 1880s. And it begins in the early 1880s in Kent. And the main agitation is against the extraordinary tithe, this additional payment for orchards and hop growing fields. It was a campaign led by something called the, Ex the Anti-Extraordinary Tithe Association, the main animator of which was Albert Bath, who with his brother ran Colgate's, Garden, uh, Colgate's Farm at Halstead. And they, in 1881, began a campaign of tithe, ref tithe, tithe payment refusal, refused to pay the tithe. Um, this picture here was produced, was, was, this cartoon was, was, was um, was, was um, produced in the 1930s, in fact. It's not contemporary to the 1880s. It's an indication of the connection between the, the Tithe War of the 1930s, the way they looked back, for examples, at what happened in the 1880s. But this is the report from the Seven Oaks Chronicle on the, 7th, of the 2nd of November, 1883, about events at the Halstead Farm. Um, basically, each year, in the early part of the 1880s, the, the, the baths refused to pay the tithe, the, the bailiffs came in uh, on behalf of the tithe owner and said we are going to take that, we're going to take that, we're going to take that, and there was an auction on the farm. In 1883, events got particularly violent, although this is exaggerated by the press undoubtedly, but someone knocked the auctioneer's hat off, and this was followed by various missiles being thrown at him. One of the parties threw a small bag of soot and his face was completely blackened. Subsequently, his clothes were torn to shreds and altogether he was severely ill-treated. This is what the cartoonist is describing there 50 years or so later. So in the 1880s, agitation against the type in Kent is focused on three areas, in fact. The, uh, the marshlands around the Swale, um, the area around Seven Oaks, and also the area around Maidstone. Um, it, it begins in the Bath, uh, on the Bath's farm in Halstead, but it's much wider 
than just an incident involving Albert Bath. I'm making that point because some historians have presented this as a bit of a, a bit of a sideshow, a bit of a pantomime involving Albert Bath. Well, no, it's not. It's a much wider protest movement which he was at the, the head of. Um, there were many, many reports in the local press um, and they give an indication of the scale and the, of these protests. At East Sutton, for example, um, after proceedings instigated by the Dean and Chapter of Rochester Cathedral, 34,000 hot poles on Boyton Court Farm were seized and put up for sale. But the South, the South Eastern Gazette reported that notwithstanding a strong northeast wind and snow falling, Farmers and labourers estimated that a crowd of 1,500 people turned out to witness and prevent and try and prevent the carrying out of the sale. These were big demonstrations throughout Kent against this extraordinary tithe. Now, Peterson, Edward Peterson, enters the story during events in Biddenden. In Biddenden in 1885, the rector, William Peterson, employed his son, Edward, as I say, was a solicitor, to issue the distraint orders to local farmers who weren't paying their tithe. And one of these distraint orders was served at the Wagstaff Farm on Biddenden Road. And bailiffs seized 47 sheep, a cow, and an auctioneer arrived from London to sell the livestock. And press reports describe how this auctioneer was met by a large crowd of 600 people. And he heard, this is his testimony, he heard someone shout, you will never leave this field alive. <laughs> and he also complained that he was continually pelted with rotten eggs and other disgusting things that woman folk in the houses above emptied on him, including jugs of water which were thrown out of the window. So there's a bit of an incident, put it like that, put at the, at the auction. Six farmers were arrested and Cranbrook magistrates imposed hefty fines and sentenced one of them, Mr Cooper from Smarden, to one month hard labour in Maidstone Jail. And the jailing promoted, uh, prompted a defence campaign, prompted protest meetings at markets, uh, a petition for uh, Mr Cooper's release, who became known as the Smarden Martyr. And uh, the government released him. It was a Liberal government at this point, And they released him after, I think, two and a half weeks or so. And the Kentish Express reported the scenes as he came out of Maidstone Prison. There was a big demonstration which marched uh, through the, the Wilden villages back to Smarden. The, the paper reported at 11 o'clock a, a triumphant start was made for Smarden, with Mr Cooper in the first vehicle, over which were banners containing the words, Welcome to our martyred friend, and down with Tory tyranny. To the mighty blast from two horns, the procession went through Langley, where the villagers joined in the procession for a considerable distance until they reached Sutton Valence to be met by the Smarden Brass Band. At Headcourt Farmers, Farmers from Cranbrook and Frittenden greeted Mr Cooper and refreshments were partaken 
at, at several different inns in the village. And at, and at intervals, and at intervals, the band played See the Conquering Hero, Hero Come. Now, this agitation against the extraordinary tithe led to an Act of Parliament in 1886, which alleviated some of the problems, although many of the underlying grievances would remain. Basically, extraordinary tithe was converted into an annual charge, uh, but it remained there, although that took the heat out of the immediate, um, the immediate um, uh, grievances. Um, now, as the Tithe War in Wales, uh, sorry, in, in Kent, died down, the extraordinary Tithe War, if you like, an even more bitter conflict on Tithe broke out in Wales. The Tithe Payers Movement in Wales, is not time to go into this, but it fused economic grievances about the Tithe, but also with nationalist and non-conformist resentment about the privileges of absentee English landlords and the privileges of the Anglican, Anglican Church. And the authorities responded to non-payment of tithe in Wales with a big heavy hand. Large deployments of police and troops were sent into Wales to collect the, or to back up the tithe collectors. And one of those tithe collectors was none other than our friend um, Edward Peterson. Because after collecting the tithe for his father in Biddenden, he decided to volunteer himself to the tithe, the tithe collectors in Wales. The Clergy Defence Association was set up in 1887 as a defence association to, for the tithe owners and they appointed Peterson as their agent. And basically, Peterson, for the next four years, toured every region of rural Wales to collect the tithe. And his modus operandi was to arrive in a district accompanied by a horse-drawn trap containing eight emergency men, as they were called. The tithe payers described them uh, as, as the bum bailiffs. Uh, many of them had been, were veterans of the resistance by landlords in Ireland to the campaign for land reform which had been waged by the National Land League. And they came over to Wales and they now began a campaign against the local farming community in Wales. And Peterson's track with his eight bum bailiffs would always be uh, followed by wagon loads of police. And sometimes a magistrate would be there as well just in case there was a need to read the Riot Act. Um, the, the, the press has got full of, there's full of um, incidents involving Peterson, including one embarrassing incident when his trap driver lost complete control of the horse when confronting a demonstration. And a court heard later on that this man who was driving the trap of Bumbaylis was very drunk. So Peterson goes off to Wales, but in 1890 he takes a break and he comes back to Kent and to his office in London and he launches the Tithe Rent Charge Owners Union. Here's the report of the first meeting in 1890 and there he is at the bottom, the honorary solicitor and in fact he was also in effect the animator, the organiser, he did everything for this association. Um, 
the, it was set up as the Tyfe Franchise Owners Union. It changed its name quite soon afterwards to the Tyfe Owners Union. And later on it became the Churchman's Defence Union, with Peterson running this, um, this organisation. Now the agitation of the 1880s, particularly in Wales, but also there was a large amount of agitation against the Tyfe in England as well, it led to more legislation, a new act in 1891, uh, which, which clarified that tithe should now be paid by the landowner, not the tenant. Many of those who have been in, in, the, in, the, leader, in the leadership of these campaigns of tithe non-payment were tenant farmers, so they thought, well, if we, if we say the landowner's got to pay, that's going to solve that, that problem. It also stipulated that if tithe exceeded two-thirds of the value of land, um, then that's the limit. It should be, there should be remission over any, any, uh, um, any, any tithe over two-thirds of the, of the value of land. And also it stipulated that tithe owners had to apply for an order from the county court before they could just walk in to somebody's property and say, I'm having that, I'm having that. So they were the three reforms. Um, there were five attempts to get this act through. It started in 1887, it was a crisis for the government for about four or five years, and in the end they got this act through. And it did take the heat out of the Tyfe situation, out of the Tyfe war for a period. And that brings us to our second Tyfe worry, because it's in this period that Frank Allen, 1902, in the period following this Tyfe act, as a young man becomes the head clerk in the chapter office of Canterbury, Cathedral and he moves, he's not from Kent, he's from London, he, he's from a modest family, his father was a warehouse worker but he secures his position at Canterbury Cathedral, he moves to Tyler Hill where he lives for the rest of his life just north of Canterbury and at the cathedral he was a valued employer, uh, employee. He, he's promoted to become the chapter registrar and in 1918, he's the, the secretary to the chapter, the most important lay official in the cathedral. And amongst his duties was to collect the tithe for the cathedral. And he did this diligently. He pursued farmers for payment in the county courts. And he showed little sympathy, actually, for farmers' complaints initially. But his work brought him into contact with the farming communities and he gradually began to realise that tithe was a problem from which the church would be best to extricate itself. Um, in 1919, he, he uh, wrote a very prescient paper where he says, uh, should these provisions of this tithe act, um, I'll mention that in a minute, proved not to be as effective as is expected, and should it happen that in 1928 or 29, Tyfe rises above its present level, and should there be at the same time, as may be the case, a depression in agriculture, then there, will, may, then there may be serious trouble. Tyfe is a great nuisance, a nuisance to the payer and to the receiver. Now, in 1924, after a major row with the cathedral dean, um, Allen left the, left the cathedral and together with another Kentish man, a man called um, uh, Sir Henry Rue, who lived in um, 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 Wormshill on the Kentish Downs, 
um, who had been an agricultural statistician, had been involved in the type issue. The two men together set up the National Type Payers Association. Now Frank Allen spent the rest of his life as a major fawn in the side of his former employers. The 30s was triggered by three developments now. Um, the first was a major change following the First World War in land ownership. Many tenant farmers purchased their, their land, often paying over the odds, and saddled with large mortgage arrangements. Uh, and they were now liable to pay tithe because they were land owners. Secondly, the effects of two tithe acts, which, which during the war, the government guaranteed minimum prices for wheat. Now, because tithe was linked to the price of wheat, this meant the, the value of tithe the, uh, to be collected rose enormously. And uh, so they tried, they realised, that well, look, the church is going to be open to accusations of war profiteering if this goes on. And not only that, it was going to go up so much, you know, 100%, too much, well, actually, more than a doubling, that most farmers wouldn't be able to pay it anyway. So they tried to peg it and fix tithe at these amounts in two tithe acts in 1918 and 1925. Um, and thirdly, though, the agricultural depression. The prices of agricultural produce and agricultural land fell dramatically after 1929. And so tithe had been fixed at a level that believed that the situation in the early 1920s and the optimistic post-war period will continue and, that will, and farmers will be able to pay this amount in tithe. But tithe acted as a, a lightning rod for farmers facing economic uncertainty. Um, this is a quotation from a, a Kentish farmer, uh, George Gill, Oxford Farm, Elam, who talks about, uh, this is 1932, he's writing, um, there are a few small farms which make any profit at all, costs are terrible, prices at their lowest, but tithe remains fixed at an average of seven shillings to ten shillings an acre. An acre. Now, the 1930s tithe wars then. And by the way, George Gill was the editor of this uh, pamphlet which we found here in the, uh, in the Kent archives. He produced about six editions of this throughout 1934 as a sort of bulletin for the type payers' resistance against the, against the time. So, the open, an opening shot in the type war in Kent in the 1930s was this event at Ruckinge in September 1931. Um, the previous December, there had been a meeting of about 100 farmers from all over East Kent in the Sandwich Guildhall. And that had formed the East Kent Tithe Payers Association, which was then affiliated to the National Tithe Payers Association. Again, in the archives here, we find lots of um, bulletins and pamphlets, the East Kent Tithe Payers Association. Um, I think... Um, I even found somewhere here there's a membership card somewhere amongst this, amongst this lot. But the secretary was our friend Frank Allen, doubled up as the secretary of the East Kent Association and of the National 
Taipei's Association. And at this meeting, it was agreed that farmers should conduct a policy of what they called passive resistance. The same term had been used in Wales in the 1880s, and in fact, the same term had been used in, the, in Ireland when the Irish peasants uh, launched a Tithe War against the English landlords in the um, 1820s, 1830s. And they adopted this term passive resistance, and amongst this passive resistance would be non-payment of tithe. And so soon, farmers were facing distraint orders in the county courts. And the courts made orders for the seizure of stock, which would then be auctioned. And so the auctions became, just like Albert Bath's auctions at his Colgate's um, farm in the 1880s, the auctions became a focus of the Tithe Payers Association's campaign and undoubtedly they drew a lot of their methods and they learned a lot of what they were doing from what had happened in the 1880s. Ruckinge was one of the first to take place. Um, this report describes how a stack of hay had been seized and National Tithe Payers Association activists had mobilised farmers and their families to attend the auction. And at this auction, this script was followed in most of the others, uh, at the start, Roderick Kedward, or it could be another leader, will get up onto the rostrum and make a speech about the iniquities of tithe. And then when the bidding began, the crowd would ensure there would be no bids, except somebody at the back would turn up and bid a pittance, and then buy the stock and they would be handed back to the to the farmer. Now what happened at this one, as you can see here, was that, um, I'll, I'll read it from my, from my notes here, when a stranger bid five pounds, there were angry murmurs amongst the crowd. And when the stranger shouted ten pounds, the crowd surged forward towards him and hustled and bustled him about the farmyard. Mr. Kedwood stepped forward and bid five hundred pounds and the farmers attacked the stranger, pelted him with mud, stones and bricks. The man drove away by car amid a hail of mud and bricks. And eventually the lot was sold to a Tithe Payers Association activist for 10 shillings as the auction started again. Well, I make this, make, use this example because who was the stranger? It's pretty good evidence. I'm not 100% certain, but I'm 99% certain that is our friend Edward Peterson, because the church had been in touch with the clergyman's defence union just before this event and argued, asked them to supply somebody to go along to bid and to buy this produce to ensure the auction was a, was a success. If it wasn't Edward Peterson, it would, it would probably be his son, who at this point was also involved in the anti-tithe payers movement. And so this event here, we see the two men Edward Peterson, our two Tithe warriors, Edward Peterson and Frank Allen, were both in the crowd at Ruckinge on the 15th of September 1931, but on opposing sides of the, um, of the issue. Now, I'm going to fly through the next, um, next and finish in about five minutes, because we're going to fly through a number of other auctions and events. A week later, um, there was the events at Stelling Minis, which you saw right at the beginning of this, this talk. This 
propelled the Taif War to the national press front pages. Because by now the, 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 the authorities were becoming alarmed, the church authorities were becoming alarmed as well. The chief constable, the chief constable of Tech Kent, was told by the home, effort, home office, you better go down there and sort this situation out. And he did turn up at this particular event to witness the auctioneer being attacked by an angry crowd. Again, I think the, some of the stuff in the press is, is exaggerated, it's exaggerating the violence, but I don't think it exaggerates the, the anger. I mean, lynching, oh, another report was about the auctioneer being lynched. This one's true, the chief constable's hat knocked off with a wet sack at this particular, this particular event. So these type auctions were becoming an embarrassment and counterproductive both for the church and for the authorities. And so what happened was that the church, the institution of the church, which was called the Queen Anne's Bounty, which was the tithe collecting institution run by the church to collect the tithe and to, to invest it and to hand it out to the clergy and so on. They won an application in Ashford County Court for distrained goods now, not to be sold by public auction, but for by, by tender. Uh, so, so you put, put them out to tender, and uh, that, so that would avoid these, these flashpoints, these auctions. And, the, and you start to see these sort of things appearing in the local, in the local press. This one's actually um, just over in uh, East Sussex. Um, this is a farm in uh, Biden, I think that's how you pronounce it, on, it, on the way to Hastings. Um, and the church also, together with other uh, Tithe owners, launched their own company called General Dealers, which was run out of a hotel in London by some ex-military men, who were sent to uh, bid for they, they they bid for the stock, and then they had these these tough guys, military, ex-military people, who went onto the farms to remove the stock from the from the farms, and it would be taken away. Uh, and put on ecclesiastical commissioners' farms dotted around the country and then dis dispersed. Um, so the next stage of it all is these, these um, seizing of stock for non-payment of tithe but then sold by, sold by tender. And so the attention of the tithe payers' movement now turns to disrupting the tendering process, including attempts to remove the produce by those who have purchased it, in many cases this company called General Dealers. Um, one example is this, this example here, a great, great Munjum near Deal in May 1932, which led to arrests and a fine, where a possession man who was guarding the seized stock was approached by a farmer and farm labourers, and the paper article says, the men placed a scarf around his neck and carried him to a cowshed. They then carried him to a cesspool into which they threw him. When he emerged, one of them said to him, you are lucky to have got off with what you have got. Well, the man who was taken to court for, for, for this incident was this man, Fred Solly, who um, was a local farmer, a dairy farmer, sold milk, but also set up Solly's Kentish ice cream, which of course delights us even to, up, to this, um, up to this day. One of the most dramatic incidents 
was this one at Elam in November and December 1932. Farmers around Elam um, <coughs> owed tithe to Merton College, Oxford, and they refused to pay the tithe. And the goods were distrained on ten farms, and possession men were, were posted on these ten farms. And another Oxford college, a new college, purchased the, the, the produce from Merton College, and on the 7th of November, they sent three trucks to Elam to collect the tithe, the, you know, to collect the stuff which had been seized, which were a collection of things like sheep, there were some cows, there were some chickens, there was farm implements and machinery, and so on. And the Times, 8th of November 1934, reports how hundreds of farmers and their supporters assembled in Elam Square to await the first move on behalf of the tithe owners. Scouts were posted to observe the movement of police and bailiffs, and the movement of the lorries in the district was also watched. And basically, seeing the opposition, seeing the pickets which had been put up all around the farms and this great crowd who were waiting in the square, the convoy retreated. Um, this was the headline in the Daily Herald. In fact, the interesting thing is both the left-wing papers and the more right-wing papers had a sympathetic uh, uh, view on this protest movement. The Daily Herald was a Labour paper, the Daily Mirror was a Conservative paper uh, at the time. But they, take, they came back on the 22nd, on the, sorry, on the 21st of December, and this time 200 police were in tow. And in quite comical scenes, described very well in this article in the Daily Mirror, the two police wagons, they look like furniture vans, collided in, that, in the narrow lanes just to the, to the, to the north of, um, of Elam. And uh, so the whole thing was, was a shambles. You know? The farmers had removed the stock from where it had been stored, where they expect the, the, the bailiffs and the, 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 uh, the people who sent in to, to get it, expected it to be, it, the, the goods had disappeared, and basically there was a number of comical incidents of, of solicitors chasing chickens around a field trying to, uh, to pick them up, and in the end they've got one or two chickens from this whole field. Um, and the solicitor's a picture in one of the papers of the solicitor carrying one of these chickens with his face covered in mud, and so on. So it, it, it was a, a shambles and a victory for the tithe payers' um, movement. Um, the tactic of removing stock from under, under threat of distraint to neighbouring farms was common. This is a case at Frittenden in March 1934 where the, the, the typhoiders had, had earmarked um, 12 pigs and two bullocks for seizure and they just disappeared in the middle of the night under the noses of babies. Harmless, secret meetings, shadowy figures were sacked, pigs and bullocks disappeared, typh babies fought it. And no one heard anything or saw anything. Kent, the Kent Messenger, March uh, 1931. And the, I think the final example would be the, which hit the front pages um, under the heading Battle of the Ducks. And this, the focal point of much of the Tithe War in Kent was the farm owned by Roderick Edward at Westwell. And on the 3rd of September 1934, general dealers arrived at the, at the farm and they removed a sow, 
uh, a bull, farm machinery, and 56 Indian runner ducks. And, these, and the animals were taken to a farm owned by the, ecclesiastic, owned by the ecclesiastical commissioners near Shepherdswell. And this is how I first got interested in this, actually, because it, uh, um, they were put on the farm near Shepherdswell, and the local tithe payers movement, farmers primarily from the Elam Valley, but also coming up from Deal and Sandwich, a hundred of them launched, launched a raid on the farm in the middle of the night and removed the ducks and took them back to the farm in Westford. And it was described as the 150 masked men raid at Kent Farm, the Battle of the Ducks. Um, a few days later, there's another pitched battle outside the Westwell farm because general dealers went back to try to get the ducks again, but also to get back um, a field of crops, wheat, and so on. And this, interestingly, highlights the role of women in the struggle. Women lie in the path of raiding lorries. Farmers and women lie in the road. So, that's really, that's really it. The time's up, I think. Um, the recovery system was in crisis by 1934. Um, there were 7,700 outstanding non-payment uh, distraint orders in the county courts. Um, here in the case in Whistable, Judge Clements, the county, Kent County Court Judge says, it is becoming impossible owing to the number of cases to, to administer the law. And the Lord Chancellor says, it is certain that if the court were to ask to execute all the unexecuted orders, he could not do so with any, re any reasonable time, precarious position. In other words, they clogged up the recovery system, they clogged up the court system, um, they, 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 they made the law an ass as far as type law was concerned. And again, the, the figures, the number of outstanding orders for distraint, in other words, farmers were saying we're not going to pay the type. In Kent, it was 1,232. The next biggest was Suffolk. Um, so, so Kent was pretty much the hot spot of this, um, of this campaign. And um, a Royal Commission was established in late 1934. That led to a new Tithe Act in 1936, which introduced sufficient reforms to take the heat out of the Tithe Board. Basically, the government bought out the Tithe owners, gave them um, uh, uh, issued bonds, so they would have a regular income. Tithe payers still had to pay a charge, but it was a, uh, a reduced charge, and it was collected not by the church or Tithe owners, but by the Inland Revenue. And this continued, in fact, until 1977, when, um, under the Finance Bill introduced by the Labour government in 1977, Tithe was finally put to rest. So that, so, uh, that, is, that is a truncated version of, of what's going to be in my book when it comes out um, next, uh, next year. So I've skirted over, I rather simplified some elements of it just, just now, but I think that's given you, I think, an impression of, our, of the Tithe War and our Tithe Warriors. Thank you.